0: Welcome to 2038. I'm David Wallace-Wells. And I'm Max Reed. In the future, the Supreme Court will die. This is Dahlia Lithwick.
1: In the year 2038, the U.S. Supreme Court will consist of two people, Elena Kagan and Neil Gorsuch, because no one else will be confirmable. And Congress will have turned off the lights and reappropriated all of the furniture. So the two of them will just sit in the dark under a desk and determine the future of constitutional law by way of rock, paper, scissors. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover the courts and the law for Slate.com and host the podcast Amicus for Slate.com.
0: So if we imagine a world in which it's basically functionally impossible to confirm new justices, just like (laughs) actuarially, like who's going to fall first? And like, just thinking through, like, will that further imbalances? that You know, like if Ginsburg dies before Thomas retires that like actually increases the differential right.
1: so it goes Ginsburg and then Breyer and Breyer is 80 John Paul Stevens by the way is 98 uh, and still could still, good <laughs> still could be on the court um, so then it's Clarence Thomas. And then and the we've got the clump of people who are going to serve for, you know, 25 years. I think one of the reasons Chuck Grassley keeps saying there's going to be a vacancy is because Sonia Sotomayor is a diabetic, and I think he's <laughs> hoping she's going to keel over. But I don't know. I saw her last weekend; she's looking all right.
0: But you could imagine a scenario in which we could lose Ginsburg and Breyer yeah. before we lose a single conservative yes. justice. Yes, absolutely. And that would be a really imbalanced court.
1: Yes. yes, but that was true in 2016 when Democrats had those yeah. two and and an empty seat and just couldn't bring themselves to vote about the court. So I think that hasn't changed. Um,
0: but if we're imagining a scenario where like basically no new justice—these are the nine we're going to have yeah. for the rest of our lives— and then the number will just drop as they each yeah. die and nobody can, new can get confirmed, that, like, in the if you project to the future and it's just two justices and you've got one from each side, that's one thing. But in the meantime, you could have a five to two.
1: Right. And, and here's the non-flip version of that, that that I think is important and worth parsing a little, and that is we haven't had a court, certainly in my career, that didn't have a swing justice on it. This will be the first. Um... Because guess what? John Roberts is not a swing justice.
0: Um, you don't think he'll move that way to try to.
1: I think he will change the way he does things, not the way his votes go. I think he will be, you know, and, and by the way, this is a pattern with him. We we think we haven't seen this before, but like before Shelby County, there was a case called Namudno that effectively did the same thing. You know, before uh, Citizens United, there was a case that. Effect- so so he's actually very deft at doing it small, so nobody notices, and then doing it big. So we're gonna just see a lot of the smalls, and then it will be, it will have happened. So I don't think he's going to become a liberal. So I think what we don't have, and this is the other thing that Justice Kagan has been saying pretty publicly now, is what was uh, Sandra Day O'Connor and an Anthony Kennedy, somebody who appears to be in play. And when we talk about the public estimation of the court, that's incredibly consequential. And it's not just, you know, that political scientists mash what it means. It's that the idea that we are going to have, you know, enshrined in stone a 5-4 court, none of us have any experience of that. In my scenario, people are going to become more and more polarized. We're not going to—nobody's ever going to put up a centrist again. Nobody's ever going to put up anyone who's in play again and— the paradox is we will put up people who are 40 who are not, you know, so you you have people who by age 40 know exactly. Uh, Clarence Thomas famously was asked, are you going to evolve to the left the way, you know, Souter and Stevens did? And he, his answer was like, I'm not evolving. And like nobody's evolving in any direction. And so just to, to, to sort of put the cherry on top of your scenario, it's that there will be no incentive for anybody ever to put, anyone up who isn't locked in on every single issue, and they will campaign on that, which we had in the last, by the way, right? Trump campaigning on Roe and Hillary Clinton campaigning openly on Citizens United. So it's going to become the possibility of a court that acts like a court is going to be, I think, unreachable.
0: The way that you know this is working now is that we need 50, maybe f- 51 votes to confirm a justice so long as the Senate's in the same party hands as the presidency. What would happen in the future that would make even 50 or 51 votes impossible? Are you imagining that the filibuster will be reestablished?
1: Democrats are all saying that they want it reestablished really soon. I think that... Uh To the extent that brinksmanship means anything, I think everybody has come to realize that confirming people by 51, you know, 48 margins is not good for anyone. It's going to lead to not only putting up nominees who are crazy (laughs) on both sides, you know, so that we're moving away from anything that looks like a consensus nominee. But also, I think politicizing and really damaging irreparably both the court, which Congress, I'm sure the Senate doesn't care about doing damage to the sort of estimation of the court. But I think that the Senate is harming itself in ways that really were in evidence in the last month. And so I think there there has to be some kind of bilateral determination that the courts are different.
0: But you're, you're guessing that if the Democrats do regain control of the Senate and and I presumably, I guess, 20 and 2020, the presidency, that their move might be to reestablish the filibuster rather than, say, to pack the court with additional justices, which is another thing that people have been talking about.
1: So the things that I'm hearing are massive court packing that I am not getting a sense that there's a real stomach for. I think that the more likely thing will be the term limits. I think that we're hearing a lot of zealous defense of the idea that whatever this insane game is, where we put on people who are younger and younger, and then hope that they serve for 72 years, uh, that's got to be wrong. And so then these 18-year limits or whatever. And I think question whether you have to actually amend the Constitution to do that. Uh, If that's the case, we have other problems. (laughs) Um, But I do think that at least at the moment that there is this one question about has something absolutely profoundly broken in the last two weeks particularly for Democrats. I mean, are they willing to walk away from all of the norms, including how we think about court packing, how we think about term limits, how we think about the court as some magical other thing? Or, you know, are we all going to surrender to what I think you're accurately describing is this Republican mindset right now, which is we did it to Merrick Garland. We pushed through Neil Gorsuch. We then pushed through. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. whatever it is, it's just power. (laughs) And I think that Democrats right now. And I cannot honestly tell you what the answer is, because it seems to me as though it is still raw. And uh, I think in the next week or two weeks, we're going to see whether this flurry of articles about court pecking, about term limits, about reinstating the filibuster, all of these things are going to shake out one direction or another. I will tell you that I know for sure that at the U.S. Supreme Court, business as usual this week. Mm. I mean, the degree to which, as an institution, they just contracted, hunkered down, swarm in, and then the next day on the bench asking questions, giggling with Elena Kagan, you know. It's not going to be, whatever happens, it's not gonna be something that the court gives us a reason to perform on. The court is going to do its level best to become invisible for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then the question is whether, and I think maybe this is your question, Democrats who really, I think, woke up and said, holy cow, we've been losing in the courts and we've been losing. We thought we were winning because Obergefell, but actually we've lost everything, including a right to free and fair elections that we missed last June when all those elections case came down we're really losing, we might continue to lose, what are we going to do and I don't know the answer to that question I know that there's been a 40 year laser focus on the political right around the court there has been an absolute sucking noise on the left (laughs) around the same issue and so if the question is does whatever outrage, fury that Manifested in the last two weeks, process wise, not even. Put aside the Dr. Blasey Ford, but process-wise, how this happened, does that have any salience in two months? That That is the question I actually don't know the answer to.
0: And just to, yeah, I mean, talking about the discourse, I've, it reminds me to go back to your prediction for 2038, <laughs> which it, the, the, it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, that the basic building block of that prediction is basically the Democrats are going to come into power shortly and have before them a choice between playing political hardball. And becoming or becoming the party of the norms and like restoring the norms. And it seems like you're what you're envisioning is that they make more of an investment in norms and less of an investment in like um, you know, getting back Garland's seat by not just appointing the justice, but maybe even add, you know, but that they're gonna become the party that's like in the same way that we wanna wash DC of Trumpism generally. On the question of courts, we want to restore the old rules.
1: Do you remember that Obama used to always say to progressive groups, force me to do this, make me make me do that? Right. You want, you know, trans soldiers in the military, make me. I think that the same is true in the U.S. Senate. And I think as long as there is zero pressure from constituents who vote for Democrats to think and organize around the courts, There will be no reason (laughs) to think and organize around the courts. And so all these hardball tactics, you know, okay, that's it. We're you know, we're going to we're going to force term limits or whatever, um, require the electorate to care. And I think the electorate. Again, I want to be wrong about this, but I've been you know, I've been every day since Justice Scalia died writing the piece that I think only my dad reads now that is <laughs> like, you know, when they go low, you can't just say, I'm sorry. Uh, but I think that that doesn't, I don't know how that shifts unless voters can keep front of mind the thing that they haven't kept front of mind until last week, which is the court is political institution. Sure. <laughs>
2: The first sort of um, stepping stone toward your prediction is that we end up with a with a eight member court because we have a we have a divided Senate and executive branch and nobody can get somebody through. So, what's the point at which the American people, looking at a court that deadlocks, I mean, do they care about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's that's where it's really the interesting problem of we had a court that was a four four court for a year and some. And I didn't see Americans going to the polls over it. Okay. I didn't see anybody thinking about it. And by the way, there's a version in which that's really a dreamy situation because a 4-4 court can't do anything bad. The paradox here is – here. this is an interesting thing that I would say. Elena Kagan is – meticulously careful to never talk politics, which must make her, by my metric, the most popular justice because everybody else says stuff and she says nothing. And she has started saying that it is now the chief justice's responsibility to reclaim the legitimacy of the court. The court can do that. The court can render itself almost ridiculously non-determinative of actual long-term things. And that's a strategy. And what Justice Kagan is now saying is now it's time for us to do that for a little while. It's time for us to do these stutter steps and to not take any big swings at anything. And there is a normative question about whether that's what we want our court to do. Right.
2: Or I mean, part of the question for me is, what's the until? Like un- until when? Until politics doesn't exist anymore? Until we're not? We don't have the same kind of rancor? I'm not. I mean, I'm g- I'm genuinely asking, what is Kagan waiting for at this point?
1: Well, it's interesting because I think part of the answer is that for a very long time, it was a Republican talking point that the court has mistakenly inserted itself into every hot-button issue of our time, right? That the, the the original sin is that a court that used to do a whole lot of nothing for a century and a half suddenly put itself in the middle of everything. Now, progressive didn't say that, but now they've started saying it. I've heard it in the last week, you know, like, what are they doing deciding <laughs> voting rights? You know, what are they doing? So there's, there's two things. You know, there is one thing that is now – All voters can agree on the left and the right that the court does too much Mm -hmm. and it should do nothing. Now, that doesn't resolve this ancillary problem, which Democrats haven't figured out how to talk about, which is we're going to witness the death of the regulatory state, right? We're going to witness, you know, all of the agencies are unconstitutional. We're going to this some of this like crazy constitution and exile stuff that that, uh, you know, Clarence Thomas has been pushing. So there's a possibility that this is going to transcend hot button social issues and become basically what the court just did to voting is going to happen to, you know, federal agencies. And I think we're going to see Democrats not quite cottoning on to that happening.
2: I mean, it seems one thing about your prediction is that um, as we peel off justices one at a time, the Supreme Court becomes less and less present in people's minds because it'll be deadlocked sometimes and it would be... uh, I mean, a lot of the decisions start filtering out to appellate courts and uh, and just sort of not at the... You don't get as many kind of blockbuster, 5-4, like, you know, knife's edge, like rights protected or rights denied decisions. So you end up in a position where... Even as rights are being peeled away, even as the administrative state is being hollowed out, people just aren't thinking about or pay attention to the Supreme Court. So, I mean, th- to me, that's the kind of dynamic uh, of your prediction is that by 2038, it's that the Supreme Court basically doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, it's just, just wallpaper.
1: It. It's just wallpaper. And I think that the court will collude in becoming wallpaper <laughs> because the alternative is just terrifying to them. And so the justices, I truly believe, and I, I sort of make the joke in part because— for that year when the court was 4-4, and I kept waiting for somebody to give a speech and say, like, it's really bad in here. <laughs> and they kept saying, it's fine, it's all good. And it was really, you know, Steve Breyer and Sam Alito were giving the same speech. And and Steve Breyer was the one saying, we could function with six, we could do this with two, you know, and so I thought this is a really, it it, it is a bipartisan, non-ideological posture that judges have to take. And so then I think that if... The alternative is further corroding public trust. They'll go with the become invisible. And and I think that the court can go for 10, 12 years and not take an abortion case or a guns right. case. But what happens in the state courts then means that we have a whole bunch of states in this country with one clinic serving the entire state. We know what happens when the Supreme Court kicks cases away. It's not that it necessarily <laughs> redounds to the benefit right. uh, of the public. And so I think, which is partly my answer to the sort of Elena Kagan, like if we just you know, put our hands over our eyes and say we're not here, then the American public won't be mad at us. But that doesn't mean that the action that's happening on the lower courts and the state Supreme Courts isn't really, really unbelievably impactful.
2: What are the other sort of things you see working their way through the courts over the next 20 years uh, for better and it sounds like mostly for worse?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the story that that we're gonna be watching for the next couple of years is uh, religious dissenters, you know, so the masterpiece cake shop being the thin edge of the wedge where people are claiming, you know, religious objections to just whatever um, public accommodations law or whatever civil, you know, uh, laws that they don't want to abide. And I think that the court is going to be unbelievably solicitous of those claims, um, more so even than with Kennedy on the court. So I think we're going to see a, a, a real pushback on a whole bunch of of just neutral laws that we thought Right. We'd locked down in the 60s. I mean, one of the things that's going to be interesting is that progressive groups are now saying, OK, the game is not to bring cases to the court, right? <laughs> Which is what the gun groups have been doing for years, right? Like we don't unless we have five sure votes, we don't want, you know, a case to come and chip away at Heller. And so the, the, the defensive posture will now shift.
2: Right. Uh, Well, I mean, one thing that you hear, um, or at least that I see a lot on Twitter, let's say, is that uh,
1: (laughs) people are saying, well, I guess uh, I wrote this yesterday.
2: (laughs) We're talking a lot about like what happens. You know, you were saying earlier about the the sort of the increasing liberal belief that maybe the courts are doing too much and they should do less. Uh, And I, I wonder if, you know, the thing you hear a lot is, oh, there should be a legislative defense of abortion, basically, that we should establish in law, enshrine in law, some, some ability. Do you think that as the court sort of dwindles in its uh, <laughs> willing, let's just say dwindles in, in across all measurements, that that legislative response is going to happen? And if it does, does it matter, really, if the courts are still solidly right wing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's going to be, you know, maybe the answer to that is actually my answer about when people say, should I panic more about Roe or Obergefell? And my answer is panic more about Roe, because Obergefell, even though it's much more recent, that was the case that legalized gay marriage is just, I don't think, going anywhere. I think that the American public is there. Mm -hmm. And that the thing that didn't happen with Roe, which is lightning quick public acceptance and a generation that comes up that says, well, of course, you know, this isn't even difficult, has already happened with Obergefell. And I think that actually destabilizing that will be harder for the court than, you know, returning 50 years right. of precedent uh, on Roe, and, which is, I think, my elliptical way of saying that it seems to me the check is going to be the American public. You know, when you look at, you know, a minority elected president thanks to the Electoral College... And then a Senate that answers to the minority. Right. So like the the, the gap between senators who voted against and for and the, how many people they represent is, is massive. So we have, you know, a minority majority president, a minority majority Senate and now a minority majority court. Right. And what ah, what's the check on that? And the check, uh, you know, two weeks ago, I would have said voting, Mm -hmm. but it turns out that's kind of vaporizing. But I think the check is, there are areas in which like the public norms have just moved on. And I think actually LGBTQ rights are one of them. I think that regardless of what, you know, the court or whatever happened, I think that train has, thank God, left the station. I actually think the same is true, by the way, of, of... Me too. I don't Mm -hmm. think that's going back in a box as much as, you know, trying to shame women um, worked in this case. So I, I, I guess my my answer is I don't know that this happens, whether it's formally legislatively, you know, whether it's Congress, whether it's simply the case that and we're seeing this, by the way, in state Supreme Court's you know, where, where state Supreme Courts, like in Michigan, they're just going to answer the gerrymandering problem, right, if the Supreme Court can't do it. Uh, recently, the Washington State Supreme Court just did what the U.S. Supreme Court has been fainting at for years, which is now the death penalty has gone. You know, it's so I think you're going to see state courts in blue states uh, step in. And then it's entirely possible that we have a red country and a blue country and we occasionally right. take trips to them. <laughs> but I think that overwhelmingly my answer is that a lot of this stuff is going to get sorted by a culture that is not nearly as revanchist as the court and the elected branches wanted to be.
2: So the optimistic version of this is that we have a two-person Supreme Court playing pinocchio or whatever <laughs> and it doesn't it almost doesn't matter because we have such a progressive rights oriented liberal population that you know hopefully and I don't really believe this personally but like that that could be the case right the 20 years from now that the millennials and gen z and power have fully absorbed the idea of lgbtq rights of abortion rights such that the court absolutely doesn't feel comfortable or or couldn't even sort of weigh in on them in a way that would uh, strip those rights from people.
1: I, I mean, it's it sounds optimistic when you say it in that like fake cheerful voice. But I think <laughs> I think it's possible. And I also think and this is just important as fast as you try to suppress the vote, as fast as you try to gerrymander, as fast as you try to do some of the things that are, you know, proving effective right now. I think that you there's nothing you can do about the fact that this country is not going to be you know, a majority white male moneyed country for much longer.
0: But it's also, I guess, the case that the country could be moving in one direction and seeing not much response from our political system basically gives up on politics and gives up on the idea of a court as being an institution that protects the rights of individuals and as opposed to just serves the interests of a slice of the right-wing donor class.
1: We have very fanciful ideas about a minority protective Supreme Court, and that is almost entirely a function of a chunk in the 1960s and 70s and Little Rock, right? Like, So we have this idea that we like to tell ourselves about that court, and the truth is for almost all of history. That's exactly what you're describing is exactly what the court was. It was protecting moneyed business interests at the expense of minorities. And we survived. So progressives just had this notion that the court was going to save us. I did. You know, I spent the last two years just watching the travel ban case and watching, you know, the Fourth Circuit is going to save us. And they did, you know, and the Ninth Circuit is going to, and they did. And just thinking that the law would be the guardrail. And and what I worry about is that the force of nihilism that consistently undermines the things that are meant to be our guardrails, some of the damage from that is irreparable. So what I worry about is actually that the courts, the lower courts and the federal appellate courts have done a, a remarkable job of pushing back on some of the really recklessly awful, you know, family separation stuff, for instance. And The idea that the entire judiciary just suffered a gut punch in terms of national estimation doesn't redound to the benefit of all those incredible judges, you know, in in Texas and California who are doing really good work. And so I think part of why I'm a little bit cautious about like, yay, the scales are off our eyes and everybody can be equally cynical about the court because it's all crap anyway. I actually think the court has served an absolutely indispensable function in this past two years. Not the Supreme Court maybe, but the lower courts. And the idea that people are going to think that that's all partisan and political, I think is so dangerous. And and so I'm trying to walk that line and that's really difficult. And I realize I say that as somebody who covers the courts and so I like Pollyanna to the nth degree, (laughs) but I think what this will do will harm every one of those amazing, brave district court judges who over the past two years have said no.
2: So we do a segment That's where sports. we judge your prediction across three different uh What's the word that I'm looking for? Axes. So we say how credible we find it, how likely it is, and how terrified it makes us. Okay. Basically. Um, and we, we've been told that maybe we're too nice to people when they're in the room and we record oh, it. But we like, to, we like to ask them to participate because they can judge their own credibility on issues and
1: stuff. But I was just being provocative. But
2: okay. Well, there's well, also a good opportunity for, yes. you, to for say, you to say. say exactly. <laughs> um, so, David, how credible did you find Dahlia's prediction? <laughs> I would
0: say moderately credible. I that When I look at the systems that govern the composition of the court, I see big swings in the future rather than like a kind of permanent stasis as it's certainly conceivable that even if you're seeing huge electoral swings, that it rarely ends up that the Senate and the president are controlled by the same party, and maybe when that happens, there's some particular grievance that the party in control, you know, and, and that troubles things so that we get a much, much, much less fluid confirmation process going forward than we have today. I find that I find that pretty credible.
2: Yeah, I mean, I found it—it it certainly seems more credible to me than anything that involves monkeying with the Constitution, for example, or packing the court, um— you know, the the question of term limits, which we touched on, obviously, is a difficult one to sort of suss out. It depends on what people believe about it. But, I mean, it's also <laughs> I'm not in a great position to judge its credibility because as a boring liberal who doesn't think enough about the courts, I just don't know enough about the courts <laughs> and what goes on. Talia, how credible did you find your own prediction?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think I want to be super clear that, like, as I was taking the subway, I was like, my two possible predictions are there's a 52-member court because it just gets packed and packed and packed <laughs> and, like, you know, that it's just basically like grand central. Or this. So I want to be clear that I was trying to be – to provoke exactly the kind of illuminating conversation um, that we just had. I I, I don't know. I mean I think – I guess I would would say it seems a little silly to me. But at the same time, I completely agree that some of the other scenarios that involve big action – I don't see happening. And so this is my it's the way I paint the picture of no yeah. big action.
2: Well, that that's a good segue into the next category, which is likely likeliness. How likely do you think your prediction is?
1: Is it Neil Gorsuch and Elena <laughs> Kagan like doing rock, paper, scissors? unlikely uh, they're much more likely to flip a coin <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I guess I would uh, associate myself with my own earlier comments, which is I, I don't think it plays out exactly like this. Yeah. I think the zeitgeist is that the court becomes generally paralyzed and uh, marginalized and that the gridlock is is so. Damaging that the court just exceeds to that.
2: Yeah. I mean, it seems, it, again, it seems likely to me, if only because I don't, I can't really imagine anything else, that what the other alternative is. It seems we're going to go through a lot more periods where the Senate and the president are from opposite parties. It's going to be increasingly hard to confirm justices. You know, it, court packing seems like a stretch. I mean, like, I love the idea that there's some mass populist uprising in favor of sort of rewriting the Constitution, say. But it just seems like just judging by the last you know by, by my entire life basically that some long slow decline of institutions is basically That's what bad. we're in for yeah so it's a
1: smoldering ashes theory yeah. well this,
2: but the slow smoldering oh, the kind good. of All you right. know the sm- really smoldering is the key to that david how how likely did you find yeah out? i mean i i
0: basically agree with what you guys are saying i personally feel a little more um i think that there's more chance of a court packing scenario because in the narrow situation that we're in now Democrats can say to themselves and their supporters, we really deserve the Merrick Garland seat. And that means that like there should be one more democrat on the court and one less republican on the court, and that's two seats. So like they could come in even with nobody retiring and say, we really deserve two more democrats on this court. And um, I'm not sure I think that, that I would say that that is likely to happen, but I th- actually do think that it's plausible because it's not there is a kind of norms-based argument that you could make for breaking the norm, um, because Garland seat was stolen and give, you know given to Republicans, swinging to effectively to two seats. I think. That's unlikely to happen, but I think it's slightly more likely to happen than you guys think.
2: Um, you should write a letter to Chuck Schumer. I think you've got you've, you've got this all planned out. I think he would love to hear it from. But, the,
0: but I mean, it's just it, the, our politics now. It's so much about grievance and resentment of the other side. And I can see a Democratic argument that sounds quite reasonable to Democrats about adding two justices to the court, and then in. The for following swing election, Republicans being like, "Well, those two guys were totally illegitimate," so F- we got fifty-two justice yeah. yeah, totally. I mean,
1: again, the cynic in me wants to just point out that I don't know if we're going to be able to hang on to the grievance of what happened with Brett Kavanaugh for more than two weeks. So the idea of a three-year-old Garland. grievance about Merrick Garland, which people had an opportunity to do something about at the yeah. polls, and we're like, "Yeah, I'm good." I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm I'm a huge believer in like restorative justice going way back, but like we I. Sometimes it feels like that (laughs) ship has sailed, my
2: friend. (laughs) Um, Okay, so the last last axis is terror. So how scared are you of this prediction?
1: (sighs) Yeah, I mean, here's where I go back to saying I really believe in the courts. I believe that the courts are fundamentally at their best, aspirationally different from the political branches, and that this country is not well served by breaking the courts and so you know bracket the conversation about well they broke it first so let's break it harder I think that's a, a really hard one for me but I think can I be happy about a scenario in which the courts are not effectively checking the other branches no I can't be happy about that that's yeah. very scary to me I mean I
0: you know I guess I I may just be too invested in like the the legacy of the, the old court the Warren court or whatever but I just think, you know, last 20 years, like what has the Supreme Court done for the left? I just don't see actually all that many. We named them. And so I can think like, you know, maybe the country would be better with a, a court that, as you said, benches itself. Yeah. um And more or less disappears from the central position. that it. So on some level, you know, in the interim, there may be ugly partisanship, explicitly um, partisan judgments that are objectionable. But if we get to a scenario where, um, the court is playing a less determinative role about the future of policy and culture in, in our country. I can see that being a positive development as opposed to a negative development. I'm not sure. I think it will be a positive development, but I can see that. Ha- I could see it
2: being that way. Yeah, I mean, I'm tr- I'm doing my best to be less of an institutionalist in my life because it's an awful time to sort of be an <laughs> institutionalist. But it is. It- I mean, we we went through the scenarios here. There are versions of this that are positive, yep. that are fine, and then there are versions of it that are, in some ways, worse than like an actual than a court packing scenario, or than a scenario where we actually sit down and hash out. I mean, you know, it, it feels to me like there's something is sort of irretrievably broken here and there needs to be a genuine national conversation like what a boring formulation but I don't know how else to put it a genuine national conversation about what the what the judiciary is for why it's for those things and 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 ideally a way to sort of rescue it from that if that involves rewriting the constitution it's never going to happen but it's it would maybe it would so I guess in that sense it's like you know if, it's if, a great tagline for the podcast <laughs> it's never going to happen but maybe it will <laughs> <laughs> I mean I guess the the idea is that like between sort of the 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 slow institutional decline, the smoldering ashes <laughs> that is just like stasis, where everything just gets worse without anything really changing. That seems worse to me than actually going in and like like breaking it in order to fix it in so, in some way. This is me, I guess, talking myself into breaking the Supreme Court in some way. I don't know. I'm terrified. I don't know. I'm terrified of everything. I guess so. So thank you, Dahlia. Thank, thank you, thank you for much. having
1: me, guys. It was incredibly weird to talk about it in this, in this framing. Uh, it turns out I have no strong opinions about anything. <laughs> That's
2: Thanks. what we all find. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Thanks to Dahlia Lithwick for sharing her vision of 2038 with us. To stay on top of our present tense of politics and business and technology, please visit the new Intelligencer website at nymag.com slash This podcast was produced by Fanny Co. in association with New York Magazine. Our editor is David Haskell. Our editor-in-chief is Adam Moss. I'm David Wallace-Wells. That's Max Reed. See you in the future.